Hi everyone, I hope you're all safe and well. This week, I spoke with Professor John Turner of Queen's University, Belfast. John heads up the Centre for Economic History there. He is currently editor of the Economic History Review. He's published in a broad range of journals, including economic history, economics, business history, financial history, and finance. I first came to John's work through his 2014 book, Banking in Crisis, which won the 2015 Wadsworth Prize. Today, however, we're discussing his new book, which is co-authored with his colleague, Will Quinn, at Queen's University, Belfast. The book is called Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles, and that's out this year. I very much enjoyed the book, and I very much enjoyed the conversation with John. I hope you do too. Take care of yourselves, and we'll see you in two weeks. So, John, thanks very much for agreeing to do this today with us on the Economic History Podcast. I'd like to start off with the typical question, what got you into economic history and and when did you start? Part of the answer to this, Sean, is aptitude. So at school, my my two best subjects were mathematics and history. And so already, uh, even though I didn't know it at the time, I was being prepared for a career in economic history. But I think really my interest started with economics. Um, Children are interested in different things. Some kids like rocks, some like looking at the solar system, some like looking at bugs that are under rocks and under trees. Uh, Others like, you know, think about machinery and how it works. Others like sport. I was kind of nerdy and I liked all things economic. So I grew up in a border town in Northern Ireland in the 1970s and there were lots of strikes about and that was one of the first memories I have of all these strikes. Why do they happen? Why are the workers unhappy? You know, as a young kid, that was going around my head. But the real sort of eureka moment for me in terms of when I started to really like economics, I was about seven or eight years old. And uh, again, I went to a school in a border town. And in 1979, the Irish punt and uh, the pound uh, were no longer one for one. Uh, so the, there was a, a float, the Irish punt floated for the first time in its, its history. And there was a, a guy in my class, and I even remember his name, Tony Hart. He came across from, from County Donegal in, in the south of Ireland. And so no longer when we had to pay our, our lunch money every two weeks, so I bring in a pound note uh, and he would have brought in his punt. Well, no longer uh, did he bring in a punt. He had to bring in more than a punt when the currencies diverged. And that fascinated me. And that's what really, really got me interested in economics. And then unemployment is something that really captured my imagination as a, as a kid as well, because I grew up in the town that was Europe's unemployment black spot. So unemployment in the town was, was 50%. Uh, male unemployment was even higher. Uh, there's been a lot of deindustrialization. There was a lot of you know the troubles, et cetera, et cetera. It was a really grim, grim place to, to, to grow up. And you're kind of asking yourself the question, well, why is there all this unemployment? And then as a teenager, I grew up uh, under Mrs. Thatcher's revolution uh, within economics. And this really fascinated me. So with the privatization movement uh, is, you know, essentially was really what got me super, super interested then in the subject of finance. Because all of a sudden, all of these big national entities were being privatized. And my parents would bring home their newspapers and you could apply for shares in these big national companies. And so I did uh, as a teenager and I started buying shares and getting interested in, in financial markets. And then at university, I still I still really hadn't come across the idea of economic history. And then at university, my, my undergraduate, I didn't really sort of touch economic history. It wasn't something that I was, again, aware of. It was only really when I got to my master's degree that I was confronted by economic history. So I was taught 
uh, microeconomics by a guy called uh, Charlie Hickson. And Charlie was a graduate of UCLA. He had come through the all UC econ history tradition, and he really infused in me a real love for economic history. And I was also taught uh, on my master's at a real privilege being taught by by Larry White. He's the world's authority on on, on free banking. Uh, And he taught me monetary economics. And again, that was infused with large elements of economic history. I think it's difficult to teach monetary economics without that. And so that really then set me up for my PhD. And my PhD was in economic history. I I looked at the evolution of bank regulation uh, across time, across space. And I got into archives and I got into data collection, all the things that that economic historians do. So I, I, I came to it that was sort of my, my journey, if you like, Sean, to, to economic history. That's quite a story. John, can you tell me when you were starting out, was there ever a paper or a book that you looked at and you were inspired by or were there a few? So, yeah, the, there was one book in particular, again, so Larry White had taught me. And in 1984, Larry had published a book, Free Banking in Britain, Theory, Experience and Debate. And this book what was looking at the monetary debates that occurred in the UK between 1800 and, and 1845. And these debates ultimately shaped the monetary system that the UK has today and the institutions that we have today, but also the monetary system in other countries. And up until Larry came along, most people had looked at this debate as occurring between what was called the currency school and then the banking school. Currency school argued that the trade cycle or the business cycle was largely monetary in nature. Uh, that the Bank of England and especially the country banks that existed at the time were to blame for this trade cycle. And therefore, you needed to regulate you know, the volume of currency being issued by the Bank of England, but especially by these private banks, these country banks. That was the currency school. The banking school said, you know, trade fluctuations are non-monetary in nature. You don't need to regulate the currency. But what most people had overlooked and what Larry pointed out was there was another school of thought at the time, and that was the free banking school. And they argued that the trade cycle was due to the Bank of England's semi-monopoly of the note issue. And so the cure to the the trade cycle was to end the Bank of England's monopoly and allow competition in money. And Larry White then used the historical case of of Scotland's banking system to show that the free banking system school were were right and that free banking uh, competition currency, if you like, worked in practice. So... What was it that I really loved about Larry's book and why do I still love it? Well, it did three things. It combined economic theory, history of thought and history. For me, good economic history combines certainly economic theory and history, but also it's important to ask, well, what were contemporaries, what were people at the time saying about the events that they were observing? And so Larry does that, that brilliantly. So that's one of the things I loved about his book. The other thing was, it's quite a controversial book. It's polemical. So he's basically saying, you know, competition and currency is, is good for the economy. Uh, he's basically saying we don't need central banks. You know, again, that sort of controversial side of things got me interested. And also, it was very much policy orientated. So Larry was speaking into debates between monetarists and Keynesians. He was talking into debates about the regulation of the banking system. And so I, I like that sort of uh, trying to speak to uh, modern debates. And again, I think uh, economic history has a role to play in speaking to contemporary issues that we face today. So, John, why then did you decide to write a book about the history of bubbles? First of all, I've lived through bubbles so I've experienced bubbles. My first experience of living through a bubble was in, in the late 1990s, the dot-com bubble. So I was a, a newly minted lecturer, a professor at Queen's. At the time, I was teaching an MBA class. I was the youngest person in the class. And all of these people in the class, this was like 1999, were buying all of these dot-com shares. And they were coming in every week and we were discussing about the dot-com shares. And I was looking at the price of these shares and I was going, wow, 
uh, I'm staying away from this. I'm a financial story and I've seen this before. It doesn't end well. And they kept saying, oh, no, no. And after the Easter break, they all came back. The market had, had collapsed. They had lost a lot of money, came back to class with their tail between their legs. And it really then taught me about, you know, well, these bubbles are fascinating. I, I want to learn more. And so then over the years, this was the second reason I wrote the book. I've had several PhD students who have been interested in bubbles and work in bubbles. And so uh, the co-author on the book, Will Quinn, was one of those PhD students that I supervised. Uh, so I've had that as well. But then also my previous book, Banking in Crisis, it had looked at banking crises over time in the UK. And I never really had spent much time in that book looking at the triggers for those crises or what it caused them. Okay, so the, the, you know, there's two major crises that I talk about in the book. So one in 1825, one in, in 2007. And both were caused to some extent by bubbles gone wrong. And so I wanted to learn more about bubbles. And so that's another reason why I decided, along with Will, to write this book on, on the history of bubbles. Do we have a standard definition of a bubble yet? What are the criteria you use? This is a, a very, very good question. And also, believe it or not, a very controversial question. So let me start this by sort of saying a little bit about the etymology of the word bubble. Where does that word come from? And one of the first times it's used in the English language in the, in the way that we understand it today is by Shakespeare in his play, As You Like It, is uh, All the World's a Stage speech uh, within that play. And there he uses uh, the word bubble to mean something that's fragile, empty, or worthless, something just like a soap bubble. That's what he has in mind. And then over the next century, the word bubble came to mean more than that. It came to mean to be used as a verb, to deceive. So to bubble someone was, was to deceive them. And so by the time Daniel Defoe and the likes of Jonathan Swift are writing in 1719, as they observe what's happening in Paris with the Mississippi bubble, as they observe what's happening in, in London with the South Sea bubble, and they see these new companies being established in, in, in London, they refer to these new companies as bubbles. In other words, these new companies being incorporated were, were worthless, but they were also deceptive. And so then the bubble metaphor, it stuck. Uh, however, like after 1720, it became less pejorative. It, it came to mean more fragile, empty and worthless rather than rather than, than deception. But then economists get their hands on this word bubble. And people like Eugene Fama, who is you know Nobel Prize winner, the founding father uh, of modern finance and of empirical finance. To quote him, he says, the word bubble drives me nuts. It's totally devoid of meaning. For Fama, there's no such thing as bubbles. We've had other scholars, and such as Peter Garber, who wrote the, the book looking at sort of the first famous bubbles. Uh, and he defined a bubble as when the price of an asset is disconnected from its underlying sort of fundamental value. But fundamental value is really hard to determine ex post after the bubble, after an event, never mind, you know, ex ante or during, during the bubble. Uh, and so then people are back and forth about, you know, is it rational, is bubble rational, irrational? So where we ended up in terms of trying to define a bubble was to go back to Charles Kindleberger. So this for me is like a hero. And he describes a bubble, he defines a bubble as an upward movement over an extended range that then implodes. And so what Will and I do in the book is try to parameterize Kindleberger. Other people have been doing this recently. People like Will Getzman have also been trying to do this. And so we talk about the bubble, bubbles as where we have a 100% increase in asset prices, followed by a 50% fall in asset prices. And we have a promotional boom. So there's new securities, new companies being created alongside that asset price reversal. So that's the definition we use in the book. It's not a 
brilliant definition, uh, but it's it's what we do in terms of trying to figure out the bubbles that, that we needed to look at. You discussed three ways that a bubble could be useful. Can we discuss these and contrast them with the more destructive forces uh, behind bubbles? The bubble metaphor is the one that's stuck in the one that the people have used, but we decided to try and change the metaphor a little bit in the book and think more about these episodes as fires rather than bubble. We just think that's a more helpful metaphor because we think of a fire, it's tangible, it can be destructive, it's self-perpetuating, it's difficult to control once it begins. And while fire can cause serious damage and destroy things, fires can also be useful in certain ecosystems. Think of renewal of savannas, renewal of prairies, renewal of certain types of forests. So fire plays a very important part of the ecosystem, so fire is, is useful. And we think the same is true of bubbles. So first of all, you get the really destructive bubbles. And so these are bubbles that are typically financed by, by banks. The banking system's heavily involved. And so uh, the bubble bursts, the banks collapse or get into trouble, then get a recession following the banking crisis. And then the, the human costs. Well, first, a bubble may facilitate innovation and actually encourage people to become entrepreneurs. So people see all of this thing happening, they become entrepreneurs, and that feeds into productivity growth and then feeds into future economic growth. The second way that the bubbles might be useful is that the new technology that sort of appears in some of these bubbles may help stimulate future innovation. So all of this technology is developed during the bubbles. There's all this money thrown at the technology, but the technology may actually be used to stimulate future innovation. Um, and we see that in some of the technological bubbles that we, we look at and talk about in book. And the third way in which bubbles may be useful is that there's certain projects that wouldn't be financed to the same extent in a fully efficient and functioning financial market. And so many historical bubbles, they've been associated with transformative new technologies, think railways, think bicycles, automobiles, fiber optics, internet. And without the, the bubble, these wonderful technologies wouldn't have been financed to the same extent. So there's a guy called William Janeway, who was a highly successful venture capitalist during the 1990s in the United States, during the dot-com bubble. And he argues that several economically beneficial technology just simply wouldn't have been developed without the assistance of a bubble. So in this sense, bubbles can be described as being useful. One of the core concepts in the book is the bubble triangle. Can you explain it? This goes back to the fire metaphor. So if you can remember back, Sean, to your chemistry school days when you've been taught chemistry in the fire triangle, you need these three components for a fire to happen. And if you remove one of these components then the fire disappears, so you need uh, fuel, uh, you need oxygen and you need heat. And so we take uh, and extend this metaphor to think about bubbles. So there's three sides of the bubble triangle. So first of all, we have marketability, the ease with which you can buy and sell financial asset, a piece of land, a house. Okay, and what we observe over time is that marketability increases and the bubbles are associated with, with highly marketable instruments. So that's the first thing. So that's akin to oxygen. The fuel for the bubble triangle is money or credit. So when interest rates are low, that can stimulate reaching for yield. Uh, there's a famous quote that Bajit has along the lines of John Bull can withstand many things, but he can't withstand 2%. And John Bull is sort of this personification of, of England or of Great Britain. When interest rates are low, people reach for riskier assets and, and they're looking for yield. And so that's part of the fuel. Fuel can also come through credit. So when interest rates are low and credit conditions are eased, you know, people then borrow to buy the bubble asset. So that's the oxygen, the fuel. And then we have the heat. And the heat comes from speculation. Speculation is very simple. This is where people are buying an asset, whether that be shares, land, or property, 
simply with the aim of making a short-term capital gain. That's the only reason. They're not buying it to get dividends, to get rental income. They're buying it to make a short-term gain. And so during bubbles, you tend to see lots of speculation. And particularly what we notice, you tend to see a lot of amateurs or novices becoming speculators. So that's the three sides. And so like any fire, you know, fire requires some sort of spark to get it going, some sort of external spark. And so for the bubble triangle and the bubbles that we look at through history, there's two sparks. The main sparks, politics. So some new political event happens and that's what sparks off the bubble. This can be deliberately engineered by governments or it's, it's a side effect of some other policy they have. Or bubbles can be sparked by some innovative new technology. Uh, and so we've got politically sparked bubbles and technologically sparked bubbles. So that's, that, in a nutshell, John, is, is the bubble triangle. So, John, we don't have time to go through all of the bubbles in your book, but the first bubbles you mention in the book were the 1700s. Uh, you go on to consider how the economic status of participants in historical bubbles changed through time. What did you see in the data? So, Sean, this is a really, really interesting question and you've picked up. Uh, I'm glad that you've picked up because it has told us that, that it works. So one of the, the narrative arcs that we have on the book is, is this idea of the democratisation of, of speculation. The first two bubbles that we look at in the book, the bubbles of 1720 and 1825, it's only the elites investing. It's only those who can afford to lose money, in some senses, who are investing. Share denominations, which are in the hundreds of pounds, these shares are priced beyond the capacity of the middle classes. But then when we move into the, the mid-19th century with the railway mania, which happened in, in Britain in the mid-1840s, we see a decade or so after the electoral franchise is expanded, we see the democratization of investment and speculation. All of a sudden, people are buying shares who have never invested before. And the middle classes become embroiled in speculation. They're now allowed to participate in speculation. And of course, many of them can't afford to lose the money that they invest. And throughout the book and throughout the bubbles, we, we look at this democratization of speculation grows and grows and grows. You know, one of the big changes in democratization of speculation was in the roaring 20s in the United States. So you get a large proportion of the population investing in stocks. And then you come to the 2000s and the property boom. And all of a sudden you have immigrant vegetable pickers in the United States becoming property investors. You have strippers from Las Vegas becoming property developers. And then you come into the more recent years in China and you've got these lower middle class so-called aunties. So these are retired ladies. They don't have a lot of money, but they spend most of their day in stockbroker offices watching the, the prices change and investing the small bits of money that they have. That's one of the big narrative arcs in the book, this democratization of speculation. The railway mania of the 1840s was one such event. You've already mentioned it. One aspect I found fascinating was the discussion about how the consequences uh, of the bubble breaking differed by country according to how new railways were established and regulated by government. Can we discuss this? The railway mania happened in the UK, so mid-1840s. You get literally hundreds of new railway companies floating on the stock exchange, raising capital. You get a doubling or more of, of railway share prices between 1843 and 1845. And then the market collapses come October 1845. And so I suppose the question we ask is, what, what was the spark for this bubble? What was the thing that triggered it off in the UK that other countries didn't have a similar type of thing with this new technology? And for us, we point the blame at William Gladstone's Railway Act. And that was really for us the spark that ignited the bubble. So 
his railway act, one of the things it did was establish something called the railway board. And the railway board was a, a very strong signal to investors, to potential promoters of new railways, that the government would only approve new railways that added to the network. Not railways that were, would compete with the existing network, but new railways which added to the network. So to put it in sort of modern parlance, they would only approve railways which created network externalities for, for existing railroads and, and therefore greatly increased passenger numbers. Building a national railway, that's what the railway board was about. And the railway board was needed because when railways were authorised by parliament, so to get authorised, you needed to go to parliament, you needed to get a charter to become a, a limited company, but you also needed parliamentary approval to be able to buy the land in which the railway was going to run through. But the structure of parliament in the 1840s was not suited to building a national rail network. So politicians at the time uh, had more of a, a local incentive rather than a national incentive. Their electoral incentive was to promote their constituency interests rather than the national interests. Politics, you know, as I say, was dominated by this sort of local interest faction. And that meant then there would have been competitions of different towns competing with one another to get their railway authorised by Parliament. So that's why we needed the railway board. But the railway board didn't have enough power when it came to it to overrule these local interests. And that was a major political blunder. And so when the impotency of the railway board became apparent, you get this mad rush of new companies, 500 plus companies looking to raise capital on the market. The railway board's abolished in the summer of 1845. And that signals the end of parliamentary coordination or this attempt to build a national rail network. And so you get all these railways then that are competing with existing railways, you know, getting authorised and raising capital. And that's ultimately what caused the crash. We get this wasteful competition. Contrast that with what happened in other countries at the time. In other parts of the world, you know, such as France, they, they weren't going to have any competing lines. They were, weren't going to have any duplicate lines. And they achieved that through state involvement or, or state ownership of the, of the railway lines. So they didn't have the railway mania that the UK had. The US is also interesting because in the US, again, railways were private enterprises, but state governments rationed railroad charters to reduce harmful competition. And that sort of de facto control you know, over the construction of railroads partially explains why the, the US didn't have uh, a railway bubble similar to the UK. The local versus national tension was built into the UK, and that's why the UK had a railway bubble, whereas other countries didn't. So it was a kind of a coordination failure, really, of the market. Railways going to nowhere. Yeah, that's totally uneconomic lines being established. And you see that then after the mania plays out, you get all of these companies then being unwound and all of these uh, lines running to nowhere sort of demolished or, or forgotten about. And skipping forward, John, five decades, can we talk about the bicycle Mania. I've never heard about this until I read the book. Can we describe what happened in the 1890s? The bicycle mania is, uh, again, this, so my co-author, Will Quinn, his PhD was on bicycle mania. Let me just use the bubble triangle to explain why it happened and what what went on. Uh, The three sides of the bubble triangle got marketability. So in the 1890s, we get this transformation in, in UK capital markets where private companies, so companies have been around for a few years or maybe longer, are converting into public companies and listing on stock exchanges. Most companies that listed in the UK stock exchange prior to the 1890s were actually listed from scratch. These weren't pre-existing companies. The entrepreneurs came, we've got an idea for a company, they raised capital market, they set the company up. So all of a sudden in the 1890s, ownership becomes a lot more marketable because you get all these brewing companies, you get iron and steel companies that have been around for decades in some cases listing on the markets. There's a lot of marketability. 
get a lot of speculation. Speculation was rife in the 1890s. There was emerging market issues. Um, people were speculating in emerging markets. There was South African gold mines. And then there were all these new companies coming to the market. And also the denomination of shares was really low. We now have the one pound share. So this opens up speculation to large masses of individuals. And then we have the third side of the, the triangle, which is the money and credit. So in the mid-1890s, the Bank of England's discount rate was reduced to 2%. That was the lowest it had been on record. And it wasn't raised, so it was reduced to 2% in 1894, and it wasn't raised until the summer of 1896. So in the bank's then 200-year-plus history, that was the longest period of a 2% bank rate ever. Mm. Okay, So interest rates are super low. You also have traditional assets such as government bonds and consoles. They were yielding 2.25%. That's the lowest yield they had ever recorded in their history. So you have all of these traditional assets, these safe assets, they've got very low yields. And all of a sudden, people are looking for other places to put their savings, to put their money. And one of those places is in this new, amazing technology. And all these companies set up to build this technology, the bicycle. So up until the 1880s, uh, the typical cyclist, and I, I don't think they would have been wearing Lycra somehow, but the typical cyclist around uh, most British cities, Irish cities, uh, would have been riding the penny farthing, this crazy, ridiculous-looking bike with a huge front wheel and a small back wheel. Taking a, a header was a common theme. It's a very risky occupation riding a bicycle. People would go, very easily go over the handlebars, and you had a long way to go down to the ground. Another bicycle uh, at the time was known as the bone shaker, and so-called because the entire body uh, shook as you, as you were cycling. So from the mid-1880s through to the sort of early 1890s, there's a combination of new technology being developed that results in what we would recognize as a bicycle today. There's something like 14,000 bicycle patents or patents for bicycle parts in this era. But the main piece of technology, the chain, the diamond frame and pneumatic tires. And you put these three together and you have the modern bicycle. So all of a sudden, you have all of these companies setting up and all of a sudden they're producing bicycles and demand for bicycles goes through the roof. Something like one million bicycles are sold in the UK in the year 1895 and 1896. And then it's, it's very popular in France and the big export to France and export to the United States. And so in the mid 1890s, then you get all of these bicycle companies wanting to convert to list on the stock exchange to raise capital. Literally hundreds, I think it's 650 roughly companies list on the stock exchange in 1895, 96, 97. And they're all bicycle related uh, companies. And so the share prices uh, go way up, they double, uh, and then when the bubble bursts in 1897, the, the prices collapse, and you know many of the bicycle companies go under. How bad did the collapse affect the aggregate economy? Was it sectoral, or was it regional, or was this marginal? The collapse of the, 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 the bicycle bubble um, certainly seems to have affected the West Midlands, because the bicycle industry was concentrated on, on Birmingham, Coventry, uh, that sort of area. And there certainly seems to have been some effect on, on the West Midlands. But in terms of the wider macroeconomy, the effects were rather limited. Why might that have been the case? Well, first of all, the bicycle industry was relatively small. Secondly, it wasn't a systematically uh, important and embedded industry. So you contrast that with electrification in the roaring 1920s. We're talking about the dot-com. These are technologies that are really embedded and are transforming economies. The bicycle quite wasn't a transformative technology in that regard. And I think possibly one of the more important reasons is that banks weren't involved. The capital for these bicycle companies came through investors putting their money into the stock market. Banks weren't lending. 
and therefore you don't get problems with banks then suffering when you know bicycle companies can't repay loans. So I think that's why it had limited effect on the wider macro economy. After World War One, the shape of global finance had changed dramatically, uh, and then we experienced the Roaring Twenties in the U.S. Can we describe the build-up? to the Wall Street crash. Yeah, so this is something that we really highlight in the book, this 12-year move towards the Wall Street crash. The US enters World War One in April 1917 to finance their the war effort. Uh, they issued the, the famous Liberty Bonds and this huge marketing campaign uh, went behind the Liberty Bond issue. So you had people like Charlie Chaplin getting involved, the Boy Scouts of America. There's also a distribution network set up to gather all of this money and get it to the government. There's like door-to-door collection, for example. And this introduced Americans to investment and created this distribution stroke marketing network that then was going to play into the rest of the, the roaring 1920s. And large, large proportion of the U.S. population. The estimates, you know, one third of the population bought Liberty Bonds. This is something that, you know, mass participation uh, in U.S. car markets for the very first time. So war ends. The U.S. experiences huge economic growth. People have got all the savings. What do they do with it? Where do they put them? There's no more Liberty Bonds. Well, initially, they put them into corporate bonds. So a lot of U.S. Uh, corporations issue bonds and people invest in corporate bonds. And then they got interested in land. Uh, you know, you have several land booms occurring in the mid-1920s for so Florida. It's turned from a swamp into what we know it today. And of course, in Florida at this time, you get the rise of Charles Ponzi, who can give his name to the Ponzi schemes. And then they're investing in foreign bonds, particularly German bonds. So again, there's this idea that using the, the marketing and distribution network, the US is able to channel funds to, to German local governments and to German national governments to help aid the German recovery after World War One and, and hyperinflation. But then roughly about 1927, house prices start to dip. And so money's taken out of housing. Germany enters into recession. So the German central bank had pushed up interest rates. So there's less money then going towards Germany in terms of its bonds. And so all of a sudden, people have to look elsewhere. So where else are people going to go? Well, the stock market. Because since 1921, the stock market's actually been performing very well, but it hadn't really attracted people's attention. But all of a sudden, it does now. And where are people investing? Well, it's these new technology stocks. So the big thing in the roaring 20s that leads to the Wall Street crash is electrification of factories and mass production. That's the transformative technological change that's taking place in the 1920s. You know, add to that, there's there's massive technological change taking place within telephone companies, food processing, chemicals, automobiles, airplanes, but it's mainly around electrification uh, and mass production. And these companies then are attracting all of this money and people are investing in these types of stocks. So how does the magnitude compare with other bubbles you studied in the book and US stock market peaked in September 1929 Dow Jones industrial average was at 381 September 1929 that was a 231% increase since the beginning of, of 1927 then in October we get the Wall Street crash a series of really bad days uh, on the stock market and so by the middle of November 1929 uh, the Dow Jones ha- has lost 48% of its value and that's in the space of just under two months. Now the Dow Jones actually begins to recover in the first part of 1930 and so it, it's recovered uh, back up to 292 by April uh, 1930 but then you know the economy 
goes into its recession and then into the Great Depression. The Dow Jones keeps falling then after that, reaches its bottom about summer of 1932. The Dow Jones average is at 41 at that point in time. So that's like a 90, 90% loss from its 1929 peak. So this certainly puts the Wall Street crash and the, the Roaring Twenties bubble up there with one of history's greatest bubbles in terms of the downside. In terms of the causes, again, uh, you know, the bubble triangle is its sort of framework we use. Uh, marketability of shares had increased dramatically. So with this new infrastructure that was being developed during the 1920s of, of gathering and investors, transaction costs in the New York Stock Exchange had plummeted in the 1920s. Uh, the telephone was one of the things that you know, made this possible. But so by 1929, there's 300 plus telephone lines going into the New York Stock Exchange. Credit, the credit growth here is, is taking place in the wider economy, but it's also taking place in terms of broker loans. So people are now one of the first times in history trading on margin, both institutional investors and individual investors. So there's credit. And then the third side of the bubble triangle, speculation, of course, uh, Galbraith documents this in his book on the, the Wall Street crash, you know, people buying stocks simply for the rise in, in prices. We get the birth of day trading. Uh, so people giving up their jobs to become day traders. And then the spark comes from uh, this radical new transformative technology, electrification, uh, and the rise of, of mass production. So that's causal. In terms of the consequences, there's a huge misconception. So you talk to most people outside of uh, economic historians, and they associate the 929 crash with causing the Great Depression. 29 crash happened, the Great Depression happened, so therefore the 29 crash must have caused the Great Depression. One of the things we do in the book is, is point out that is a misconception, and we explain why we think it is a misconception. The Wall Street crash did not cause the Great Depression. The Great Depression happened because a credit boom went wrong that then affected a very vulnerable banking system. You've got the gold standard and the rigidity of the gold standard then playing a role. And you've got the failure of governments, particularly in the United States and particularly of the Federal Reserve, in dealing with banking collapses. That's the cause of the, the Great Depression, not the Wall Street crash. We spoke already about the socioeconomic status of speculators and how it changed through time. One country which has seen its middle class grow quite dramatically in the last 30 years is China. Can you tell us about the bubbles that China experienced and that you wrote about in your book in 2007 and 2015? I have to say this is probably my favourite chapter in the entire book when we look at China. I find China an absolutely fascinating country. China, as part of its liberalisation, created its stock exchanges in 1990-1991. It began to incorporate its state-owned enterprises, and then those state-owned enterprises are listed on, on the stock market. But the government, and particularly then local governments in China, were still amongst the largest holders of shares in many, many of these corporations. Uh, in fact, they, they all had some degree of government ownership. So then when China signs up to the World Trade Organization in 2001, one of the things that it has to then commit to and deal with is the amount of ownership of its corporations, particularly manufacturing and exporting uh, corporations. And so it has to commit to privatizing and selling off more of its ownership stake in these companies. And it tried to do so unsuccessfully in the early 2000s. So by the time it gets to 2006, 2007, it's really under pressure to, to do this. And so it has to create a, a bubble to do so. To get rid of all of their non-tradable state-owned shares, they create this bubble that then you know people start buying these state-owned shares. And that's what they did. They faced a, a different problem in 2015 because there's another bubble that happens in China in, in 2015. Here, the issue is that after the global financial crisis, the stimulus package that the China launched was huge, probably one of the largest in history. And this led to a lot of 
companies and corporations being overly indebted. And so those companies needed to get down their debt levels. So do like a debt for equity swap. So they needed to issue more equity. But China was also under pressure because to maintain its sort of politically acceptable growth level, which was settled about 7% in sort of 2013, 2014, it had to then develop new technology firms and it had to encourage the setting up of new technology firms. These are deliberately engineered bubbles. How did they do that? Yeah. So engineering the bubble in, in 2007 was easy. So you've got a repressed financial system. So the Chinese middle class, which numbers about 400 million people, you've got limited social security. So they save a lot of their money for their old age and, and for their children. So what do they do with their abundant savings? Well, they've got two choices. They either put it in a, a government-owned bank that pays interest below the rate of inflation, or they can invest in property or stocks. And so the vast majority then invest in stocks. Uh, 2015 required something slightly different. People were aware, you're not going to fool me twice. So something different happened. And something different was margin lending. The scale of margin lending in 2014, 2015 in China is unprecedented in the history of stock markets, even in the US in the 1920s. It's estimated that margin lending supported between 20 and 25% of China's stock market capitalization at the height of the bubble. So engineering these bubbles in 2007 and 2015 was, was easy. So speculation was rife. So all of a sudden you've got millions and literally tens of millions of novice investors drawn into the market. And gambling is illegal in China. So if you're a gambler, What's one of the ways you can gamble? It's on the stock market. And, you know, retail investors, unlike in, in Western stock markets, um, you know, institutional investors make up the large bulk of capital flowing into markets. In China, it's retail investors, like 85% of stock market investment in, during these bubbles was by, by individuals, by, by retail investors. And then you've also got restrictions on the internet and news media. Okay, so you've got a state-controlled press and social media. And that gives the state substantial control over the information available to investors. It gives the state ability to puff or to pump the stock market and to engineer these price rises. So, you know, there's stories being told of, of social media influencers in China being paid to puff stocks. And then the state press is puffing the stock market. And also short selling is constrained. So short selling is where people are betting against market rises. Okay, so the speculation on the downside. In, in 2007, it was illegal in China. And in 2015, it was controlled and heavily regulated and didn't apply to most parts of the market. So people couldn't bet against those market rises. So that's how China engineered these two bubbles. And that's why I'm so fascinated in this chapter and why it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. John, you discussed the idea of predicting bubbles. Is it reasonable or is it possible to predict bubbles? Uh, and what are the things we should be aware of? I tell people that I've written a book on bubbles or I'm interviewed by people such as yourself, Sean. The most common question I get asked is, are, are we in a bubble at the minute? Or when's the next one going to happen? And so you know, the last chapter of the book really deals with this idea of trying to predict bubbles, trying to predict when they occur. And our answer it doesn't really satisfy a lot of people. They're very difficult to predict. People want some sort of set of metrics that you can, yeah. okay, we've got a bubble. If this and this and this and this happens, it's, it's difficult. How do we deal with this issue of predictability? So let me phrase this in a different way. Do we have a bubble today? So people are looking at really high stock market valuations in the United States, you know, despite coronavirus. You know, are we in the middle of a bubble today? So we go back to the bubble triangle. Do the three sides of the bubble triangle exist? Do you have high marketability? Well, yes. Uh, Tesla shares, Amazon shares are, are several thousand dollars per share. But stockbrokers today exist that give you fractional ownership. So even if you're a small time 
investor. So therefore, that's a lot of marketability. We've got these zero commission online brokers. So brokers that don't charge you to buy, to trade shares, to buy and sell shares. They make their money off observing the order flow coming in and out from retail investors and selling out to institutional investors. And you've also got speculation. All of a sudden, there's this whole subculture out there of these day traders. Because of coronavirus, they're locked up at home and they've started speculating on the stock market. So this exists in the United States. To a lesser degree, exists in the UK. Certainly large elements of it in India at the minute and in China. And so speculations are money and credit. Interest rates are at the lowest zero bound. People can borrow very easily to invest. And there's a lot of reaching for you. So those three sides of the bubble triangle are present. So that means that a bubble could happen. But of course, we need the spark. And this is the tricky part to predict. Where is the spark? Has it already come or is it about to come? And that requires really difficult thinking about what's going on in the world. You need to understand the geopolitical things. You need to understand politics. You need to understand sociology. You need to understand so technology, so many things going on in the world. And so we finish the book by saying we need a new mental model so if you're an investor and you're wanting to predict bubbles, you need to think about bubbles in a slightly different way. And one of the most important tools that you will have at your disposal is economic history, helping you predict why bubbles might happen. Just to wrap up, John, I want to take you back in time to the first emerging market bubble. Uh, let's say I've come across an investment prospectus in London for a country named Poyet in Central America. I'm very interested and I decide I want to go all in on this investment. Uh, can you describe my subsequent fate? Well, l- let me just give you a bit of background here to this country whose bonds you're investing in. So the Napoleonic Wars loosened the grip of the major Iberian powers on, on Latin America. So with the result that from about 1810 onwards, you know, you get all of these independent struggles taking place in Latin America. And so by the early 1820s, many Latin American countries had declared their independence from Spain and Portugal. And then these newly independent countries come to London, to the capital market, to raise funds to the military, to raise funds for you know building their, their country and, and infrastructure in their country. And the first batch of Latin American loans was issued in 1822 to, first of all, Colombia, then Chile comes along, then Peru, and then this mythical country of Poye in Central America raises money on the London markets. So where was Poye? Where can I find it on my atlas, says Sean, the investor, in 1822? Well, Poye was ruled, and I'm using that term very loosely, by the infamous General Gregor MacGregor. He was a Scottish adventurer, mercenary soldier, and narcissistic fraudster. He had purchased uh, about 8 million acres of land in Central America on the infamous Mosquito Coast. And that should tell you everything you want to know at this point, Sean. About roughly the size of Wales. And he dubbed himself the Prince of Poye. The land, however, was unfit for anything. It was unfit for cultivation. It was unfit for habitation by animal or by human. It was a swamp, a mosquito-infested swamp at that. But McGregor induced these investors in London to give him £200,000, which is like a lot of money at the time. Uh, and Poye bonds were listed on the London Stock Exchange. And you can go see you know, stockbroker list at the time listing these Poye bonds. But of course, news eventually got back. His con was exposed. And by January 1824, the Poye bonds were worthless. So Sean, you would have lost everything, but it could have been even worse because McGregor had convinced many Scots people to emigrate to Poye to help him establish his new country. 
And most of the first two shiploads of people, about 250 in total, died soon after reaching the malaria-infested fake country. So it could have been even worse for you, Sean. You might have decided, I'm going to emigrate. (laughs) That seems like a nice, dark way to end the show today, John. (laughs) Thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. (laughs) 